technologies that are dominating today, they're dominating because they're able to deliver force faster, harder, stronger, smarter. So if we ask the question, what is money? Money is the highest form of energy that human beings can channel. Bitcoin is channeling human ingenuity into making it better. And, and every commodity is channeling human energy into making it worse. The lowbrow or, or the, the, the historic colloquial term is hodl, right? Hold on for dear life or just hodl or save, whatever. And the highbrow term would be adopt as a treasury reserve asset. Hey guys, so as you learned uh, by watching the What Is Money show, Bitcoin is the single most important asset you can own in the world today. And so this begs the question, which I'm often asked, how does one build their Bitcoin position? And the strategy really is simple. I suggest first you decide on an initial portfolio percentage allocation and a target portfolio percentage allocation. Go ahead and establish the initial position with a one-time buy and then start dollar cost averaging towards your target portfolio uh, percentage. And you can also complement this by buying Bitcoin price dips to further increase that position and reduce your cost basis. And finally, I suggest to everyone to take custody of their Bitcoin, to move all of their Bitcoin into self-sovereign custody, because again, Bitcoin left on an exchange is not Bitcoin, it's a Bitcoin IOU. And for those of you living in the US, there's no better choice than Swan Bitcoin to do all of the above. So Swan lets you set up automatic recurring buys for Bitcoin, also lets you facilitate one-time buys for, for buying price dips. And finally, they let you do, set up automatic recurring withdrawals into cold storage, which is a really big deal. And all of this they provide at the lowest fees in the business, uh, approximately 0.99% per year for weekly buys of $50 or more, which is about 60, I'm sorry, 70 to 80% less than Coinbase by comparison. And the best part, Swan is a Bitcoin focused education first company. Uh, they, they publish great content on their Swan Signal Live podcast. Uh, they publish a lot of content in their newsletter and website. And their, their team is just the absolute dream team of Bitcoin. Uh, I would say check out their roster. It's growing every day, but, but it's a super impressive group of individuals. And so with that, I would highly recommend you check out swanbitcoin.com backslash breedlove. You get $10 in free Bitcoin for signing up. Um, and it lets you stack sats with myself and the rest of uh, the Swan team as we continue the fight to restore freedom truth and virtue in the world through Bitcoin. All right, thanks. Hey guys, welcome to episode five of the Sailor series here on the What Is Money show. Uh, super excited for this one. This is episode two of us getting into Bitcoin theory. Um, and just things are starting to really heat up and get interesting at this point. So it's a big episode. I don't want to waste a lot of time here. I'm just going to run through a few of the topics uh, that we'll be hearing today. If you haven't checked out episodes one through four yet, I suggest that you do, because a lot of the foundation that we've been building upon up until this point uh, really starts to throw off uh, some good energy here. So 
Today we're going to be talking about money as power. Uh, also talking about one of my favorite ways to describe money is as an insurance policy on the uncertainty or the entropy uh, of the future. And then we're also going to be looking at debt and how it's actually a form of anti-energy. Anti excuse me. And then Sailor delivers a really interesting take on fiat currency in that it's a way of politically toxifying money. Um, and he draws some really interesting analogies there that I think you're going to like. And then we're going to deliver a thought experiment that I think is a really simple way of clarifying the value proposition of Bitcoin and its superiority as a store value in comparison to all other assets. Um, maybe something you could use in your own uh, arguments with, with pre-coiners. And then we're going to talk about some lessons of history um, and how essentially the most organized group of people tend to win out. We're going to look at store value versus medium of exchange in terms of monetary functionality. We're going to look at the utility of money and how that intends to drive its market value. We're also going to look at the productivity of market participants in a monetary network and how that drives market value. And then finally, we're going to look at Bitcoin as you know what I've argued in the past and what we get into a bit here is that American is a, I'm sorry, Bitcoin is an American technology. Now, I do not mean America, the nation state, like it was invented in America. I mean the idea of America, the principles of free market capitalism. Bitcoin positively embodies them. And Sailor and I get into a unique discussion on that topic. And then we'll look at and compare and contrast the nature of fiat currency inflation and Bitcoin appreciation and see how they're sort of polar opposite uh, forces. And then we conclude by diving into some philosophy. We're talking a bit about truth and how Bitcoin uh, relates to truth and, and uh, civilization's relationship with the truth. So, big episode today. Excited for you guys to see this. Let's jump in. We're talking about, about Bitcoin the, as the first digital monetary network. And, and um, I'm positing this, uh, this uh, thought experiment. I have a hundred million dollar block of energy. I, I can generate a hundred million dollars worth of energy through chemical processes, kinetic, gravitational, electrical, atomic power. Let's just assume that I did some amount of work in order to generate that energy. I converted that energy into money. Money is the highest form of energy. Now I've got a hundred million dollar block of money. You can do a lot with a hundred million dollars. It equates to about 3,000 pounds worth of gold. It converts to $100 million of currency, and it converts to, you know, we could do the calculation in Bitcoin, 10,000 Bitcoin, right? Or a little bit less than 10,000 Bitcoin, I guess, at this point in time. And, right. and now, now, I want to do two things with it. I want to channel it through time, and I want to channel it through space. The beauty of Bitcoin channeling through time is that there really is no loss over time. There's no inflation. You've only got the 21 million Bitcoin. So as a ratio to the 21 million, it's, it's infinitely hard. And, um, and so that's a big check. And, and uh, if we contrast it to gold and fiat, you're going to lose 99.5% of your energy in fiat you're going to lose 98% of your energy in gold. 
<clears throat> you're going to keep all your energy in Bitcoin. So clearly channeling energy through time is important and, and, it's, and it's critical. Channeling it through space really refers to not just moving it around the world, but it means moving it across domains as well, but from counterparty to counterparty. And uh, we can see the inefficiencies of fiat counterparty to counterparty is you're, you're locked into nine to five banking hours. You can't do big transactions on a Saturday. <clears throat> you're, there are certain jurisdictions where you can't do transactions at all. You're always working through a counterparty, which is its own risk. And um, of course, if we go to gold, we'd, fiat is faster, but it's, it's still got complexities. And gold is slower. It's going to take a month to physically deliver gold. And so super slow, super expensive. And so neither fiat nor gold make nearly so much sense for channeling energy through time and space. I think that the best metaphor when I think about this is it's like I want to cross from London to New York City and I need to cross the Atlantic and that's the journey. And if I'm going to do it with fiat currency, it's like a rubber raft with a leak in it, maybe a big rubber raft and it's got a leak in it and I'm going to be continually blowing up that raft every day to keep it from sinking on me and I'm going to get battered this way and that way. But it, it's a, it's a bit of a venture. On the other end, with gold, it's like getting in a wooden ship. And it's, it's going to rot over the course of many, many years. But maybe for the first few, two, three, four, five years, compared to the rubber raft, I feel pretty good. But it's a heavy ship. You know, wood is heavier than rubber. So it's kind of harder to get going, and it's harder to maneuver it. But it's a bit more solid. But ultimately, it's organic, and it's going to decay. And then if I put it into a, a crypto container, a Bitcoin, it's like a steel vessel. I have a steel hull, <clears throat> a steel hull container ship really is the best metaphor. <laughs> Thousand feet long, 60 feet wide, moves 30 knots. The thing that's special about steel is steel is indestructible as long as you maintain it. The maintenance means you have to keep it from corroding. It, it can be attacked by a corrosion. And the way you maintain it is you paint it. You sand it down every five to 10 years, you repaint it. If you maintain it, it will last longer than you will last. In fact, it's, it will last essentially forever, hundreds of years. If you punch a hole in a steel hull and then you weld it, the weld is stronger than the original steel. So it is an indestructible, extremely strong, re repairable uh, element. And uh, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that if you're going to actually engage in commerce all around the world, you want a bunch of steel container ships. You do not want wooden ships. And you certainly don't want inflatables. And that, that's the distinction. And that's why Bitcoin is really such an extraordinary invention. You know, I, we talked about getting out of the gravity well. The other metaphor is I have $100 million worth of energy. If I can get it into a vacuum and vacuum seal it, it's like vacuums. When we want to keep food forever, we vacuum seal the food. Mm -hmm. We want to keep bacteria from attacking it. 
we want to we want to keep natural parasites and pathogens from attacking right. our food energy. And so the way that you protect your food energy and stabilize it forever is you vacuum seal it. <laughs> and uh, the way you protect your monetary energy from parasites and from decay and from rotting is you vacuum seal it. And uh, that is the genius of Bitcoin. When I, when I say the destiny of money is to be encrypted, it's like, it's like vacuum sealing your food. It's you're taking monetary energy and fiat that can decay, debase, diffuse, and you're encrypting it in, a, in, an, in an encrypted container such that no one else can touch it, no one else can screw with it. And uh, when you think about you think about all these miners, these miners are power plants, they're plugged into analog energy, but they're modulating the analog energy, the physical energy, the pure energy, through the SHA-256 protocol to make it a wall of encrypted energy, if not a cloud of encrypted energy and, and the rails of encrypted energy. If you want to pass through that, if you want to attack that, you have to go through that wall of SHA-256 encrypted energy and, uh, and all of our monetary energy is protected and floating in the cloud behind that wall, right? And, and it's a fairly unique wall, right? And, and that's the, the, the majesty of Bitcoin. Right, already the most powerful computing network in the world. We've never had something as cryptographically secure as the Bitcoin network. It's already, in its early stages, already the most powerful computing network humanity has ever seen, with still a lot of room to grow. Yeah, and, that, and I guess that takes us to our next interesting question, which is, so how big can the Bitcoin network get? And how, how, is, the, how is it going to absorb more power? I'm, I'm measuring money is power. By the way, the cliche, money is power, right? Money yeah. is power. It's not a cliche. It's a deep reality. Money is the highest form of power, the superset of all power. Every kinetic energy, I can take bows and arrows and guns, club you to death and take your money or take your value. With a war, I can convert kinetic energy into power. Atomic energy into power. Chemical energy, I can burn and create power, right? Gravitational energy, dam a river and create right. power. And ultimately that power becomes money. So, but I can't do the, maybe I can do the, I can take the money and I convert it back in the other things, but, but money yeah. is this amalgam of all powers, you know, that, that mankind has managed to collect. Yes. And so the question really is how big, how much money, how much power can flow into Bitcoin? And uh, there's a lot of debate in the community. For example, the most famous model is the stock to flow model, right? And, and a lot of Bitcoin is talking about stock to flow. And it's like, well, as Bitcoin gets harder, its price is going up. Well, I mean, the power in the network is directly proportional to the price because it's equal to 21 million times the price, right? That's the power in the network. You can almost look, think of it as a voltage or something too. The higher the voltage, the more energy passes through electrical network. 
So I see the price as the voltage. And um, I, I think that, um, that stock to flow is, is an interesting, uh, it's an interesting trans, what is it? Transcendental model where our particular model as we're moving through a short period early history of Bitcoin where uh, the, the rate of block rewards is falling dramatically. But I think that as you look toward the future of the chain as it asymptotically goes to 21 million and as the block rewards uh, go to zero and the entire network flips over to transaction fees, then you start to think, well, that's just because it's hard, that's not going to explain why it's valuable. It's, it's hard to, you know, to synthesize polonium or uranium. But it's really hard to create steel. Really hard. Like steel power plants, if the steel overflows, it hits the concrete, it blows up, kills everybody. It's hard to deal with nitroglycerin. There's a lot of hard things in the world. And there's some things that are nearly impossible. I will probably never walk on the sun impossible. But the impossibility of something doesn't make it valuable. What makes it valuable is, is some other dynamics. And I, I have a simple model. My, and I tweeted this model the other day. I think, I, I think that the success of Bitcoin and the network power ultimately is a function of the adoption, the utility, the productivity, and the inflation. Those four, and they're, they're big grand concepts. They're vectors, they're not like one number, they're ideas. But the adoption idea is a monetary network is gonna be as big <clears throat> as, as uh, the amount of, uh, of assets or the amount of asset holders that adopt it as their primary treasury reserve asset. So for example, if a million people with $100 each decide to hodl their $100 and they put $100 million into Bitcoin, the Bitcoin network's worth $100 million. If a company with $100 million decides to hodl their $100 million in Bitcoin, they're gonna, and the, the, the lowbrow or, or the, the, the historic colloquial term is hodl, right? Hold on for dear life or just hodl or, or save whatever. And the highbrow term would be adopt as a treasury reserve asset. <laughs> Same thing, yeah. <laughs> if I'm filing an SEC statement, I would say adopting <laughs> as the treasury reserve asset. And if I was, if I was just a Bitcoin maximalist and I loved it and I got it, I was, I'm hodling. Yeah. And they're the same. And that's why I love the hodlers. That's why yeah. they're, they're, they're my people. I love them, right? They're hodling. But, and, they, and they figured it out before I figured it out. And I give them credit. They figured it out, and that's genius, right? But I'm not too proud to learn, right? Some some right, other right. you gotta believe it. If I lived a million years ago and some dude comes out with fire, I'm like, I'm not like I'm not the guy who's gonna say, I'm not doing that. That wasn't my idea. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. Can I borrow some of that fire, sir? And thank yeah. you. Right. Thank you for bringing life to me. So adoption. The number of individuals and the number of entities that adopt Bitcoin as a treasury reserve asset, not measured in numbers, measured in monetary energy and, you know, in whatever US dollar equivalents, but they're converting their fiat, euros, yen, pesos, dollars. The total US dollar amount 
of fiat that is converted into Bitcoin for the purposes <clears throat> of holding as a treasury reserve asset. Like you see the, the traders, the speculators, they're short term interesting, but over the long term, they don't really have any value to the network. Right, someone that's going to to buy a million of Bitcoin today and sell it tomorrow, they're not going to drive network energy because they're going to rob the network of energy as fast as they fed the network. They are mercenaries. Right. You know, the Roman Empire was built on citizen soldiers willing to fight and die to protect what they believed in. At the point that you're hiring mercenaries to fight and not die as long as you pay them your empire's over. Right. Right. So citizen, the, the hodlers, people that adopt Bitcoin as a treasury reserve asset, they're citizens of Bitcoin. They're citizens mm -hmm. of the network. And the more, if you decide it's 20% of your treasury reserves, like this is, it's a matter of faith. It's like, how committed are you? If you're really committed, like say MicroStrategy, you know, I had $500 million worth of money I didn't need. I had two choices. I can buy the stock back or buy Bitcoin with it. Well, I bought as much stock back as the, as the shareholders wanted to sell to us because that was the appropriate, respectful thing to do. Right. Per tender offer. And then whatever's left, we convert, right? The treasury right. is our reserve asset, which is our reserve energy, is our life force. Right. Treasury is life force. You know, it's not, it's not unlike fat. Fat is nature's organic battery. You carry 30 pounds of fat, that means you'll probably be able to live an extra 60 to 90 days without food when the going gets tough, right? Oh. And so it's an organic battery. A treasury is an organic battery, or it's a, it's a monetary battery for a family, an individual, a company, or a country, right? You have no treasury you're going to die very quickly, you know, when the crisis right. hits, right? And you're going to be insolvent. In some ways, uh, in a, through an economics lens, we would, I often describe this as cash, a cash balance, whatever you're holding it in, is basically an insurance policy on the uncertainty of the future, right? Because this cash balance or this treasury reserve gives you pure optionality in the marketplace, you're best able to contend with unforeseen developments, right? Um, and another thing, just to jump back to the, the power and money relationship, I think it's very uh, interesting to look at it, power through the physics definition. Physics defines power as work over time, right? Which that's what gold was. It was reflective of our collective work over time. And it was a claim on that work over time in the form of capital. And the other thing, you're, you're uh, drawing the analogy to the vacuum ceiling to protect it from parasites. I work, we could all agree that work is kind of the opposite of theft, right? You don't create any value by theft, you just steal the value of others' work. And that's essentially what inflation is. So money uh, being power, there's a big incentive to store it in a medium that is as much protected from theft as possible. And I think that's that's getting to the core value proposition of what Bitcoin represents. Yeah, that is definitely the, pro the, the proposition, right? It's, it's an, an encrypted energy 
crucible in which we store the precious energy of life and and we're we're insulating it via a, an encrypted vacuum layer from all the things that would bleed off or steal that heat right heat you know steal the heat steal the energy right be it a, a political a political exchange or or just just uh, physical right there are a lot of ways to lose the energy of life you know and uh, bitcoin solves that problem um now, how do we get energy into the system, right? Uh, it, yeah, there are a lot of metaphors for heat exchange. And, and if you look at closed systems, a closed system in thermodynamics is, um, is mass cannot leave or enter, only heat. So let's assume that 21 million Bitcoin is the mass. It cannot leave or enter. Heat can come. Um, if I'm buying Bitcoin, at a, a price higher than the rolling, the rolling three-year average or the rolling 200-week average, I'm heating it up. And if I'm selling it at a price lower than the rolling average for whatever time frame you care about, let's say that four years is your time reference frame. If I'm selling it at a, a price lower than the 200-week than the moving average, I'm cooling it down. So people see Bitcoin trading day to day and they're like, oh, it's lower than yesterday. That's not what I see. I see it if it's trading at 10,000 and the 200 week rolling average was 7,000. I see it heating up. I see yeah. it. I, I see it as capacitor gathering energy. Right. And, and that's a very it's a, an important uh, way to think of it. Now, we come back to this issue of adoption. You can adopt Bitcoin with varying degrees of commitment. This is like, a adopt, it's like joining a religion, right? It's like, so I adopt Bitcoin as my treasury reserve asset. And then do I commit 50% of my reserves to it? Or 1% or 99% or 100%? What is the true adoption rate? How much do you really believe it? Is it a hedge? Is it a 1% hedge, a la Paul Tudor Jones? Or is it a 100% commitment, a la Michael Saylor, right? I said, no hedge, no speculation, 100% commitment. Just By the way, just like your body is 100% committed to storing excess energy and fat, 100% commitment, right? No. There's no other thing. Uh, you know, I like your analogy of an insurance policy, except that I would say, and an all-powerful insurance policy with no caveats. Because the problem with most insurance policies is I have an insurance policy on my restaurant, but it doesn't cover pandemics. And so right, I'm back. Right. Like, have you noticed how many insurance policies are not paying off in the right. pandemic because there's a carve-out? Well, we only insure against a, you know, only if this happens and that that happens. And if you didn't do this, and if nobody said that, and if the government didn't do this, then in that case, I will give you some money. Right. If you were driving your car and you were drunk, I don't pay the policy. If you were sober, I pay the policy. Unless someone says that you were erratic and I don't pay the policy. Where And so that's the problem, by the way, with buying an insurance policy. Yeah. If I, if I 
have a hundred million dollars of energy and I buy a million dollar insurance policy that pays off a hundred million if it pays off. Well, that's cheap. And I get to take the 99 million and buy something else with it. But it's but I've assumed risk. I've taken right. a counterparty risk in order to get the insurance policy. Right. You could say, you could say that a hundred million dollars of Bitcoin in your treasury is an insurance policy with no counterparty risk. This I think is, brings up a very deep point. I actually tweeted about this today. There's a quote from Carl Schmidt that says, "He who gets to decide the exception is sovereign." Right. So there's rules that we're all abiding by our protocols, but whoever gets to make exceptions to those rules or protocol, it really has the power to act as they see fit in the world because they get to bend the rules. Right. And that's what is so deeply profound about Bitcoin is that it is a set of rules that we cannot break. It is an exception proof money supply. And it's unlike anything we've ever had. And by by eliminating that attack vector such that any group could be sovereign over the money, it, it, it effectively makes everyone individually maximally sovereign. And that's one of the great breakthroughs of Bitcoin. And that's why it should be a treasury reserve asset. If, you, right. look, if you look at the, the corruption and the decimation, the destruction in our society, and the devastation in our economy. There are two. There are two things that everyone fears: individual bankruptcy and corporate insolvency. Right, Be becoming insolvent as an individual or as an entity. So, how many times have you heard the story? <clears throat> that was a really good company, but they but they took on too much debt and they couldn't make their interest, and they were broken up, and they closed their factories and they moved away, and now we're eating, I know, manufactured slop from a machine because our favorite vendor got destroyed. Right. There are a lot of companies that get destroyed. How does it happen? Well, they're in, they have treasuries in fiat. The fiat's inflating. So the CFO thinks, well, I can't afford to invest this. <clears throat> it's not politically acceptable to invest in uh, stocks or equity that keeps up with inflation. If I invest in bonds, I can't keep up with inflation. And so I start borrowing, buying my stock back and I borrow money to buy my stock back. So they, if I have $100 million in treasury and I borrow $100 million, and then I buy back uh, $150 million worth of stock, I get the stock up. But now my treasury is net minus a hundred, you know, uh, what is it? I got 50 million in cash. So I'm minus 50 million in net treasury instead of plus a hundred million, right? Right. So I went from having a positive, uh, a positive uh, position. It's like you have enough fat to live for 30 days without food to a negative position. You have no fat, you're in debt, and there's a banker that clicks on a feed you button every day. And if the banker decides to pull the plug on your credit line, you're instantly eviscerated. Exactly. And so, the, so a company in debt with no liquid assets has no energy. It's an energy debt. Right. And so what that means is 
maybe you generate a uh, hundred million dollars in cash flow a year and you've got 500 million in debt and or a billion in debt and you need 90 million of it as EBITDA to cover the covenants. That means you have a $10 million cushion. That means you have a $2 million a quarter cushion. That means that in any given quarter, if you were short $3 million on a 500 million number, that $3 million kicks you into default on your debt and renders you potentially, it renders your capital worthless, right. can drive your, drive your equity to zero, and can render you insolvent, and the creditor can take control. You lose your sovereignty. The creditor takes control of your company. You lose everything. That's right. You lose, you lose every, By the way, it's the same as I go onto an exchange and I'm trading at 50 to 1 leverage or 100 to 1 leverage. Right. Like, the idea that I'm going to pledge one Bitcoin and get control of 100 Bitcoin, and if it goes down by 100 yeah. bucks, I'm going to be utterly wiped out. It's a pretty silly idea. I would not recommend it to anybody other than an addicted gambler. You you right. literally, if your goal is, I'm okay losing all of this, and it's just like going to Vegas or going to Bitcoinville, if that's the what you want to do, then call it a gambling habit, but there's nothing rational about it. The leverage, The leverage could be thought of as every entity – be it a government or a corporation, is draining their life energy, pouring it out, right? When you flip from being from having a, a positive treasury to a, a negative treasury, I have drained my entity of my life force, and I'm living at the pleasure of my creditors, right. wherever and whoever they may be, or my counterparties. I've lost my sovereignty. Absolutely. And, and, and I've... Individuals do it too, right? Corporations uh, uh, do it, individuals do it. Absolutely. And I think you're, you're plucking the thread of how the incentive schema related to fiat currency fragilizes the economy, right? In a systemic fashion, because to your point, there's no adequate store of value. So people are forced into, at the individual and corporate level, are forced into the use of leverage, right? The assumption of debt, because the, the real debt load is actually eroding via inflation over time. So there's an incentive to take on debt, but this is a very short-sighted strategy because now you are hyper-exposed to the inherent volatility of the future, right? So once there's any form of shock, right? COVID or any other form of economic shock, you can go to zero immediately and get wiped out yeah. versus holding cash makes you anti-fragile, right? You can absorb these shocks. You can actually capitalize on these shocks such that if price, if things get priced lower in the market, you can go and acquire things at a discount. And, and, it, and in a simple world, if you, if you had cash that was non-inflationary, if the, if, if the pol politicians uh, adopted Austrian economics and said, we're gonna print cash with zero inflation, then, this, then it's simple for the citizens of the society to save in cash and, right. and you have deflation. And the cash will actually be worth more over time, right? And that's what Jeff, Jeff Booth puts out, points out. But every technologist knows this. If there was no inflation, the cash would buy more over time. Right. And, right. and my entire simple monetary uh, strategy would be save cash and over time I'll improve. But in, in a currency war, the political system declares war on the currency and makes the cash toxic. 
And if it's 2% toxic, that's like a, that's like injecting a mild, a, a mild drug into your veins. When it becomes 10% toxic, it's like a poison in your veins. When it becomes 20% toxic, this is like basically saying, I'm going to put you on chemotherapy, but actually it's like putting a healthy person on chemotherapy and I pump toxic chemicals through a healthy person's bloodstream because current, right? Current is, is like, like blood current. It's carrying the energy of life, the oxygen. Oxygen is energy, right? Your blood carries energy to keep you alive. Currency is carrying energy. If a sovereign nation is injecting massive inflations it's into its own currency, it's injecting a toxicity into its own circulatory system, and it's somewhere between either one metaphor is chemotherapy, another metaphor would be uh, diabetes, type 2 diabetes. I'm injecting so much sugar, so much sugar into your system that you're, you know, your insulin response is failing, you know, and you're becoming insulin resistant and your body becomes diabetic. And I inject, I, I give you metabolic disease because I am just pumping the liquidity. Right. pumping that too hard into the currency, which is the blood of life. Which is possibly where we are today, right? I mean, the stimulative responses by central banks don't seem to be having the same effect as they used to, right? Yeah, ar arguably, like, if I pump enough sugar into your body, you become diabetic first, and then the pancreas fails, and the liver fails, and you, you have organ failure, cancer, and death. That's that's a that's what happens if you if you overdose on pure sugar, right? Um, I guess the equivalent would be hyperinflation. If I if I inject enough enough money in the system that the currency loses all of its energy carrying, like oxygen carrying capability, energy carrying capability, I just lose it all. At that point, the organ failure is now. How do I buy electricity? How do I right. buy food? Right, right, right. How do I get on a bus? Like all the transit systems, the food systems, how do I pay soldiers and policemen and firemen? That's right. or death of the society. That happens right. in hyper, hyper inflation. That's a great point. The other, you, you said it, it loses its energy carrying capacity. And it's also, there's a connection here to information, right? Because the price signals become totally disrupted. Like the money means nothing in that, in that instance. So, capital is not being allocated efficiently whatsoever because price is complete. You completely lose this economic nerve signal that we call the price signal. So it's losing its energy carrying capacity, it's information carrying capacity, and you end up with cash in the streets like we have in Venezuela today. The phrase, um, the phrase toxic shock comes to mind. Mm. Toxic shock yeah. of the body, toxic shock of the system. But Let's move back to our happy subject. How does the Bitcoin <laughs> energy network grow? Well, adoption. So a million people adopt it as their 90% treasury reserve asset, and they have a million dollars each. And now you've got a, a million times a thousand is a billion, a million times a million is a trillion, right? So a million 
millions get you to a trillion in the network. They put the money in the network and and the network is the syndication of all of the energy, all of the treasury energy of the people that choose to adopt it as their primary treasury reserve. Mm -hmm. So when a million people put a million dollars in, it's a trillion dollar network. When a thousand companies put a billion dollars in, it's another trillion network. Mm -hmm. So now you're up to two trillion. When when a hundred companies put a billion in, right, or or a hundred billion in, right, you you go to the next level. So as individuals, families, com private companies, public companies, government agencies, small governments. Mid-size, you know, municipalities, states, small countries, mid-sized companies, big countries, all the nonprofit organizations, right? As they adopt this as their treasury reserve asset, they don't need to adopt it as their currency medium exchange. They don't need to adopt mm -hmm. it as a unit of measure. It's, as it becomes their store of value, their treasury reserve asset, as they adopt it, the network syndicates all their energy you know, and the decision of Apple to buy a hundred billion worth of it would be would accrue to the benefit of a million hodlers that bought a hundred thousand each or a million each or fifty thousand, whatever they bought. The beauty of it is that everybody is pro rata parapasu benefiting. Right. And it's in everybody's interest to bring everybody else in, right? That's right. <laughs> and yep. uh, and it's a network effect. Right, that as someone comes in, someone else comes in, the price moves up, the people that were in it get, get a benefit. That, and, and now we get to this next dynamic, right? But with me pausing to say, without adoption, right? Without people believing that this should be their treasury reserve asset, without that, you have nothing, right? So, right. so, so it's not enough to say it's just hard. You have to, people have to love Bitcoin more than they love gold, silver, Apple stock, Amazon, Facebook, whatever. And by the way, we didn't touch on it much, but if we consider, you know, Bitcoin as an energy network versus Facebook as an energy network or Apple as an energy network, the, the issue there is I got to look out a hundred years and say, will I be able to put a hundred million dollars in Apple stock, hold it for a hundred years? And what's my exposure? And of course, your exposure is income tax on the company, mm -hmm. sales tax on their product, tariff exchanges, regulatory interaction, income tax on their employees, all sorts of other taxes, you know, you can come mm -hmm. up with, plus, plus any other regulatory action, including and likely being the ultimate regulation of these things as public utilities. Right. Because if they weren't regulated as public utilities, the richest guy in every city would be the guy that owned the electrical power plant. Mm -hmm. And that guy would be richer than Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates. Or the only reason that these guys are rich is because they're in a new, novel, unregulated area that was not deemed to be important. And the problem is, as soon as it is deemed to be important enough that you can't live without it, then it becomes a God-given right to have access to your YouTube or to your iPhone or to your whatever. And now this is the entire value proposition differs. 
I mean, we, we live in a society right now where people think equity is like a perfect store of value. What they don't realize is it's possible for the equity to go to zero. The equity, could, for example, a nationalized power station has zero equity. It still works. <laughs> when stuff gets nationalized, be it, be it education, power, electricity, technology, the equity goes to zero. You can have something where the equity zero and the debt has value. You can have something where the equity has no value, the, the debt has no value, but the underlying vendors are getting paid. I mean, it, it can shift back and forth. It's a political thing. Right. So, so with regard to, to uh, Bitcoin, right, and the value of the network, it comes down to people making the commitment to adopt it as their treasury reserve asset at all levels. And, and no one, I would, it's just as good for us if Norway adopts it for their, mm -hmm. for their treasury reserve as it is as some big charity as it is the Rockefeller Foundation or the Hughes Institute or Harvard or Stanford or MIT, or for a private company or a public company, you know, or an agency of the government, maybe, um, you know, the county, you know, that you live in or a city you live in or the fire department or a union or a pension fund. And then there's all the investors, right? Hedge funds, pension funds, insurance companies, right? All, there are a lot of entities that have monetary energy. They either need it to operate or they've stored it up in trust for, for, for their shareholders or for future generations, et cetera. So as that energy flows, the network strengthens. Now that's the first order dynamic. It's simple network effect. It, we're syndicating our power. No different by the way than Let's say that there's a hundred of us on a football field and you organize 50 people to be on your tug of war team. And I can only get five on mine and the rest are all singletons. Your team wins, mm -hmm. right? If there's a lesson of history, by the way, the lesson of history is the most organized team always wins. Right. The reason the right. Romans kicked everybody's ass for nearly a thousand years is they were the most organized Right. Even the, when they put their petty differences aside for 700 years, they beat everybody else. Right. And then when they started fighting with each other, there's a decay. And eventually they when they were disorganized, that disorganization causes uh, a deterioration in power. So it's the most organized that wins. It doesn't matter whether you're in eighth grade football or right. whether you're in high school or whether you're in college or whatever it is, organization is always critical. And, and I think I think you're pointing to another strength of the Bitcoin network here and also debunking what, what I would call the alternative narrative that money needs to be adopted as a medium of exchange to proliferate as a network, right? You, you do have to hold or adopt it as a treasury reserve asset in an economic sense to create reservation demand for that asset. You're taking that asset off the market. You're reducing its supply, thereby increasing its price. And that's what creates the, the bootstrapping effect, I guess, of this monetization process. And that, that, again, harkens back to this evolutionary path where you have it as a store of value first. After it's accreted enough value, it can be used as a medium of exchange because those early holders have more of an incentive to use it as a medium of exchange. 
And then finally, once it's widely accepted enough, it's being used as a unit of account. So I think that really, and to your point about organization, holders are all perfectly aligned to 21 million, right? It's just the energy efficient strategy is to just hold. It's very simple, hard to disrupt, hard to disorganize because there's not a lot of activity on part of the holder. So it seems like an indomitable strategy in the market for that, money. That's why, that's why if you understood Bitcoin, you would never say something so silly as I know when to buy it and I know when to sell it and I just right. trade. The people that are trading in it don't really understand it because if they understood it, they would just buy it and hold it. And then sometimes people think they're accomplishing something, but they're accomplishing not that much. Like if a hundred, a hundred entities buy a billion each, then the value of the network is going to go up by a hundred, by more than a hundred billion dollars. And if they just buy it and park it in a cyber vault and don't touch it for a hundred years, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. It's going up, right? It's that that the 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 fact that they poured their energy into the container is actually what caused the energy network to grow. The moving in and out is actually wasting and dissipating energy. You know, you're you're just dissipating energy to come and go, and um, and ultimately, the success of the thing is we've got. I've, I hear these people, they talk about uh, store of value medium exchange. Well, Bitcoin is a high frequency store of value and a low frequency medium of exchange. Right. I, that, that's what it needs to be. And technically, that's what it is. And, and if you understand that, once you get it, you realize you shouldn't fight that. So, for example, I buy a billion dollars of Bitcoin every second every second it keeps anybody from stealing my bitcoin Mm -hmm. every second it's storing the value no government no parasite no thief no hacker is taking my billion dollars so every second for the next million years it's working i you know in the same way that i put that energy into a vacuum package and every second it's staying vacuum sealed and the whole point was to live forever and so if I gave you a little crypto feel that made you live forever and never age, you would say high frequency longevity device. It works pretty well. Mm-hmm. And you wouldn't have a problem. There's nothing wrong with living forever. It's immortal energy. So that's high frequency. The problem is people don't recognize that every second of the day they're being attacked. You are being attacked, by the way. Every second of the day, there's bacteria and there's viruses trying to kill you. If I said, I'm going to spin up a field that stops them from killing you, it's going to work a million years and you're not going to notice it, you would think that's a pretty good trick. But that's, in fact, what happens when you actually store value. Now, low frequency medium of exchange, in order for Bitcoin to have its anti-fragile properties, we, and for it to have utility, we have to be able to move it on occasion. Maybe once a year, I move it from one, one cyber crypto bank to another one or one cyber vault to another one or once a decade. Or maybe when I'm going to die, I need to transfer it to somebody or split it between my daughter and my son. Or maybe not. Maybe I just have one key and I give it to 
my one child, they give it to their one child, they give it to their one child and it never gets transferred. But, but um, maybe once a year, I have to take 5% of my Bitcoin out of my vault, convert it to fiat, and then break that into 100,000 little parts and put it on Apple Pay and use it to pay for Ubers and Domino's Pizza and credit card bills. Okay, once a year, I take out I take a chunk out of my piggy bank, my crypto bank, and I put it into fiat and I do whatever I'm going to do with it, right? Maybe. And by and maybe if I if the world works the way you think it might work, I just put a hundred million dollars into the vault. I never take it out. I just borrow against it. And I borrow, you know, like I just borrow three million a year, one million a year, tax-free. I don't recognize income. I don't generate a capital gain tax. I don't generate any operating income tax. I, I don't, if I borrow money in cash, and if my, if my Bitcoin is going up 20% a year, if that's the real yield, and I can borrow money at 5%, then my effective arbitrage is 15%. So it never makes sense to sell it ever. Right. In fact, in fact if you look at people that use real estate as a store of value, the way it works is my family buys a block in Manhattan for $100 million, or they buy it for $10 million in 1900. It goes up 8% a year. It doubles every 10 years. It's worth 20 million, then 40 million, then 80 million, and then 160 million. And by the time you get out 80 years, you got a billion dollars worth of real estate in Manhattan. You're not selling it. You haven't done one transaction in 100 years. All you've done is pledged it as collateral against the loan, and you borrowed $42 million against it, and you're paying 3% interest. And that $42 million, that's not income. You didn't pay 40% tax on $40 million in income. That's not a capital gain. It's not a long-term capital gain. It's not a short-term capital gain. It's a liability. You've generated $42 million of liabilities against a non-taxed asset. The only way it's getting taxes, you're just you're suffering from real estate taxes, right? No. But but you can see if you if you're in a jurisdiction where inflation is high, real estate tax is low, interest is low, then your secret to living well forever, tax-free, is just borrow against your stationary assets. And so, you know, and that's that's the news in the that's the news of this week, right? Donald Trump has 400 million in debt and paid no taxes for a decade. Right. But he's not unique. You know, you could substitute every real estate magnate, generational, a family that had generational wealth in real estate. They all did it. Yeah. All of them. Like it, that's, you know, how do rich people live well and pay no taxes? Not by selling stuff. Right, Not right. by transacting stuff. The way that they actually live is they just park an asset on the balance sheet and they never, ever, ever, ever trade it. They just finance it or borrow against it. And then once in a blue moon, once in a decade, somebody wants to pay me triple what it's worth. And maybe I do it, but oftentimes, you know, the Warren Buffett school of thought is the taxes kill you. And so the ideal holding period for an asset is forever. Right. And it's not just, you know, he says it's forever because like I'm committed to it. Yeah. But it's the taxes 
that murder you. And so the ideal holding period is forever because then you can pledge it and borrow against it. And you know, how do you get rich? You buy an asset, it goes up, you borrow against it to buy another asset and it goes up, you borrow against it to buy another asset and it goes up. And pretty soon, you know, you've generated all these assets that are highly appreciated with massive built-in capital gains that you're never ever gonna recognize. No. Obviously that can change in different tax jurisdictions of the politicians decide they're just gonna tax you on unrealized capital gains. But now, let me ask you, how do, how do you balance that with the, the not becoming fragilized by leverage? Is it just kind of a threshold that you would keep, you'd never borrow more than say 10% of the value of the collateral, something to that effect? Is that how you protect yourself? The fragility comes from uh, uh, two primary metrics, uh, collateral coverage and, uh, and the... Um, <clears throat> and the mark to market, the, the frequency of the loan, the duration of the loan. How frequently is, is the collateral marked to market? Mm. So for example, if you borrow money to buy a house and it's a 30 year mortgage, and if the bank says to you, they're never gonna market to mark, they're never gonna mark it down, right? There's some loans like a mortgage loan where they'll never get marked down they might get marked up. You can go to the bank and you can petition them to revalue your loan. But nobody ever went to the bank and said, <clears throat> uh, mark my house to the market after the real estate market crashed. But, right. Sure. Yeah. So if you buy a million dollar house with a, with a $800,000 loan, right, and you've got 800000 in debt and it's, and it's never marked to market, then there's not that much fragility as long as you can make the $25,000 a year interest payment. Assuming three percent, right? So that's not that risky. I mean, a little bit risky. You can't make twenty-five thousand, you lose it. But but on the margin, if I didn't have the million bucks, or I didn't have the eight hundred thousand, and someone's going to give me the eight hundred thousand dollar house for free, and all I do is pay twenty-five thousand a year, I think that's pretty good trade-off. And the worst that happens is <clears throat> they take the house back, and I go do it again somewhere else. So, so that's not very fragile. How does it get fragile? It gets fragile when you buy a million dollar house. And, um, and you pledge, um, well, actually it gets fragile when you buy a million dollars worth of stock on $800,000 loan, you know, <clears throat> and you've got loan to value of 80%. And now the stock trades down 20%. Right. And the stock trades down 20% and the banker marks the loan, marks the collateral every day. Mm. And if you're in a swap uh, with a bank, uh, they will market to market every day. Every single day, they calculate the value of collateral. And if you're under, they, you have to wire them the money the next day. And if you're over, they, they, in theory, have to wire you the money. And you have to market to market every day. That's risky. And, and, and of course, so if you were going to buy stock, if you're going to buy a $100 stock, you probably don't want to borrow more than 50%. But but if you borrow 50%, you, you damn well better think that the volatility is not going to be 50, right? right? You can't afford it. So probably in that case, if you thought the volatility was to could lose half its value, you want to borrow no more than 25%. Right. <clears throat> and if you want to be able to hold the stock, even if it loses 80% of the value, you can't borrow more than 20% loan to value, right? Right. <clears throat> so... The, the big risk, the hyper risk is like <clears throat> one of these Bitcoin exchanges, I go 100 to one leverage and I mark the market 
every hour. Right. What if I mark to market every minute, Robert? Right. I mean, that's the BitMEX liquidations. Right. I basically bought a hundred Bitcoin. I pledge one Bitcoin. It gets marked to market every minute. And if the price goes down a hundred dollars, I get wiped out and there's a crash. Right. <clears throat> and, uh, and it happens in three seconds. So that's risky. Yeah. If you, if you want to take the opposite point of view, I have uh, I have 100 Bitcoin and I'm going to borrow the equivalent of one Bitcoin in value or 10 Bitcoin in value. And as long as it doesn't go more than 90% down, I'm good. But if yeah. you wanted a safer one, you would say, I'm going to borrow against the collateral, but I want you to agree that you won't ever market to market. Mm. That's what real estate loans are. Right. Or like a, or you know, a bank. Uh, I'm going to loan you money against your artwork, or against uh, your boat, or against some other uh, some other interesting collectible. And every year, our our um, appraiser is going to reappraise it, or every five years. Right. So it's the the issue is the frequency of the appraisal. Right. Combined with the volatility of the asset. <clears throat> Combined with the political regime you're in, combined with the loan to value. If you're in a political regime where, where it's unacceptable to let real estate values go down, then you can reasonably expect that it's not likely your house is going to be worth 20% of what you bought it for because the politicians won't let that happen. But they right. might not protect your Picasso painting. But mm -hmm. so if I borrowed money against Picasso painting, you know, I might. And the banker said, we're going to market the market every month. That's not as good as once a decade. Mm -hmm. Right. So, so when you're thinking about risk, you're thinking about how liquid is the collateral and how frequent is the mark to market and then how much is the loan to value. And, and that's how you, you get to a, a, a question of risk and what you should do or not do. That makes sense. Well, I'm not so saying you have to do it, by the way, you know, you could just sell the Bitcoin highly appreciated for cash, pay yeah. the tax and take zero risk. And, and you know, look, if, if the interest rate was 18% and you, and you thought that um, the economy was going to grow at 4% or 3%, then you would sell mm -hmm. and you would take on the debt. So it's a function of, of uh, interest rates as well and, uh, and productivity. And I guess, Let's go back to this issue of our, our, our power equation. Adoption, utility, productivity, inflation. We talked about adoption. And my point there was you're just syndicating. If the world is static, in a static world where there's um, a trillion dollars of assets, if you get 100 billion on the network, <clears throat> then that's better than 10. And 500 billion is better than 100. <laughs> And in a static world, it's just all about recruiting and getting people to join the network. But the world is not, strictly speaking, static. The next, next thing is, is dynamic, and technology is what makes it dynamic. And that's where utility comes in. So if I can take Bitcoin and I can buy it from Square Cash, it's got more utility. If I can uh, send it, as $22, if I can send it from Square Cash, if Square will convert my Bitcoin into dollars and send it in a split second, it's got more utility. 
if Apple Computer builds it into Apple Pay and I can link a small wallet with 1% of my Bitcoin into Apple Pay and I can zap that around on my iPhone, it's got more utility. If, if a bank, if Kraken creates a crypto bank and they offer me 4% interest and they'll offer it to me with institutional low risk counterparty and they, and they represent to me that they've got $100 billion of insurance and I can give them my crypto wallet and I get 4% interest on it or six and I trust them. The utility just went up again, right? And uh, Bitcoin becomes more valuable. If, if I get to the point where, where I, can I can manage my crypto keys, you know, using my retina scan or face ID and give speech instructions and I can say, send Robert $37 in cash you know, for, of my crypto. And if it always works and I did it, I just did it. Right. And it's more secure than hardware key. And I don't have to remember my 12 seed key or whatever. And I don't have to have it, whatever. And it never, never fails. Utility went up. Right. right. It, it, but if I can say, Robert, if I can say, uh, uh, maybe I got a girlfriend, uh, Lisa, I say, send Lisa flowers on her birthday every year for the next decade, click. And it's jacked into my crypto utility went up, right? There's a lot of ways utility can go up, right? If buying stuff, selling stuff, et cetera, it's all a function of technology. If, if the lightning network works, you know, and yeah, in the ideal world, back to, back to my example, I have, X money, $10 million, I have 100 million, or I have 100,000 in my uh, checking account. <clears throat> I say, move 100,000 into checking, leave the rest in the, in the bank yielding 7% interest, tie my checking account into Apple Pay, link that to my Uber account, my sister's Uber account, my Domino's account, and use it to pay off Netflix, Google, this, that, and the other thing and pledge it you know, as trusted collateral on some dating network to show that I'm a real person and then use it to, oh yeah, and automatically pay all my fees on my domain registrations every year when they come due. There, I just said it. I just did it. That's utility. That's, right? That's yeah. what it's so connected to productivity, right? You're just, you're, it's enabling you to accomplish greater results with the same or less efforts. So the utility is a reflection of your productivity. And that, that's a great segue to, to element three of, <clears throat> of the network power, and that's productivity. Well, we have a million hodlers, and they put a million dollars each into the network. And now, <clears throat> and now we have a trillion dollars in the network. Adopting it as your primary treasury reserve asset means sweeping your excess cash flows into Bitcoin. So those million people put a million each, but how much money do they make each year and how much do they save each year? So let's say they, they uh, make 100,000 a year and they save 10,000 a year. So 10,000 times a million, 10 billion, right? So in that case, 10 billion in fiat gets converted into Bitcoin every year. That's the productivity. If they all get a raise, ten, next year it'll be 11 billion. Next year it'll be 12 billion. If they all start their own business, then next year it'll be 30 billion. If the economy is growing, 
and they're inventing cool stuff, and one of them becomes an ex-Michael Dell or Bill Gates or whatever, that person's going to put in a hundred, you know, billion or fifty billion, right? If you if you get lucky and one of your hodlers is Jeff Bezos, and he's going to put in thirty-seven billion, so the productivity of the individuals is going to sweep cash flows into the network, and the same is true with the productivity of the corporations. So. MicroStrategy, we put 500 million into a network, we make 50 million a year. If we generate 50 million a year after tax, we sweep that into the treasury, right? And do that 10 years in a row, our initial 500 million is going to become 500 million more of discounted cash flow. Right. <clears throat> so now we're just back to some basic finance theory. What's the value of the stock? It's equal to the cash, the the uh, the balance sheet, cash value, plus mm -hmm. the discounted value, uh, the discounting of the cash flows, the discounted value of the cash flows over time. Right. So, the treasury that gets put in is the initial slug, and the discounted value of the cash flows of all the people in the network is the next value proposition. Of course, this kind of dovetails nicely with economic theory because. If the overall worldwide economy is flat and not growing, then the cash flows are not going to grow. If the overall economy tanks and goes and, and starts to deteriorate, the cash flows will deteriorate. If I destroy the economy, cash flows are going to zero, no value will accrete. And if I invent an atomic overthruster that gives you infinite energy in a sugar cube, presumably, you know, productivity is going to go through the roof and cash flows are going to go through the roof. So ultimately, we're getting a bunch of people to join the network. And then the, our fates, all of our fates are intertwined with all of our productivities. We've created a cyber economy, just like Warren Buffett said, never, never bet against the United States. The United States was a 20th century physical economy and every business in it was working to the benefit of every other business and a competitive capitalist Darwinian ecosystem. Well, now we're actually creating a cyber economy where you can be in a relationship with anybody else to the extent that, that Robert, you adopt as a hodler and I adopt as a corporate treasurer. If I'm successful, you benefit. If you're successful, I benefit. Right. Obviously, if we can get Apple computer to put a hundred billion in and then sweep 50 billion a year, we all benefit. Right. And when a country does it, they benefit. And of course, if the people that join the network are more responsible, right? If, if they actually are productive and they save more than they spend or they right. earn more revenue than they spend in cost, then the network grows. And if they spend more in revenue, Flip it the other way. A million hodlers all of a sudden save their money and then they start going crazy and partying and quit their jobs and buy Lambos and blow it all on champagne and gambling. They start drawing down their balances in the Bitcoin network and they sell their Bitcoin for fiat. And if they're selling it for fiat, they're draining the energy out of the network. Right. right? So the network is going to accrete with virtuous economic behavior and right. debase and dilute with vices. 
I, I love the example that you use of the United States as being this Darwinian economic ecosystem of value creation, because it was indeed kind of, it was the place in the world with the lowest impediments to free trade that actually led to America creating the most wealth and the most capital, right? And in many ways, I think Bitcoin positively embodies a lot of the, the founding principles of a, we'd call, say uh, American free market capitalism, right? You have inviolable property rights in Bitcoin, uh, which which in the American ecosystem are actually marginally disrespected through quantitative easing and, and fiat currency printing. Um, there's a rule of law here so in the U.S., so we have nonviolent dispute resolution and enforcement of contract law. Uh, and clearly the Bitcoin network is you know, the most adept network at reaching global consensus we've ever created. And then kind of from the first two, uh, honest money or hard money would be something else that a, a real capitalist system puts out. So it's, it's almost as if America as an experiment was the closest thing to pure capitalism we had prior to Bitcoin. Because again, the nation state always gives into that temptation to violate the money supply and thereby violate the private property rights of its citizens. You know, Robert, uh, you, you jog my memory or jog my thoughts. I've described Bitcoin as <clears throat> a swarm of cyber hornets behind a wall of encrypted energy. Well, <clears throat> the United States <clears throat> is a a swarm of military assets, a Navy, Army, and Air Force behind a wall of water. Right. You know, the insulation yeah. is the Pacific Ocean, the Atlantic Ocean, 3,000 miles of water. You had to go through the Navy, the Army, and the Air Force. And <clears throat> that protected a bunch of capitalists, a bunch of entrepreneurs work, you know, in service of the goddess of, of wisdom, in this case, in service of the American way, right? The American businesses pursuing the American dream unhindered by interruption because they're behind a wall of water. But, you know, you, know, you, go, to, you go to Poland, they're good people too, right? I've been there. I have a lot of Polish employees. They're brilliant between Russia and Germany. You know, sometimes, right. you know, again, Trotsky's point, you may not be interested in war, but war is interested in you. It's kind of hard to go about your business when people are rolling over you with tanks this way, right. that way. And, and uh, the equivalent of that in a monetary system or, or an energy system is when someone's stealing your energy. Right. Okay. How, how do I keep my coffee warm? I put it in a thermos. I need mm. to insulate my energy so that no one steals it. If I, if I take your Starbucks coffee and I put it in a cooler of ice and I drop it in the ice, your coffee's getting cold, mm. right? right? And so the wall of encrypted energy is the insulator. The wall of water is the insulator. The insulation is the insulator. The vacuum is the insulator. If you want, if you want a crucible of... of um, virtuous innovation you need that vessel that serves as the insulator against all the forces that would attack it from without mm -hmm. or interfere with that process and um you know and that's 
yeah, that is Bitcoin, right? We're, we're creating that. And, and having said all that, right? Adoption, utility, productivity, those three things create that monetary chemical reaction of sorts. <laughs> and the last piece is inflation, but inflation is almost just the way that we translate the energy. It's the translation coefficient of the energy into a frame of reference of, of the dimensionality or the domain where I'm spending it. I mean, I'm gonna have to translate my monetary energy into rubles or pesos or dollars or euros or yen if I cross into one of those domains because it's their world, not our world, right? Right. So if, uh, if the dollar didn't inflate, then would Bitcoin go up? If, if the United States had a perfect monetary policy, no inflation, could Bitcoin succeed? Yeah, it could succeed if people adopt it because it's got technical advantages, right? Mm-hmm. If they adopt it as a reserve asset, I mean, their choice is that versus stock versus bonds versus property. You still have the issue of how do I, how do I commute energy through time and space? So I would still adopt it. Technology would still get better. I mean, if there was no inflation, you would still like the iPhone. Mm-hmm. You, know? you would right. still like zooming to me if there was no inflation. Technology would get better and we'd have productivity. We'd be inventing stuff, fusion, better materials, etc. And when we created stuff like zooming and we put together Zoom with YouTube, we would talk and someone would go up on YouTube and 100,000 people would see it and three people would have an idea and something would happen that wouldn't have happened otherwise. You don't need inflation for Bitcoin to be successful any more than you need it for Google or Apple or Amazon to be successful. It right. just happens that that uh, in an inflationary environment, it, it accelerates. 2% inflation will grow it 2% faster. 10% inflation will grow it 10% faster. Right. In theory, if a bond is, is pure energy and if bonds are inflating at 20%, then that means that Bitcoin will have a 20% real yield in that currency where you see that energy inflation. And it'll be different relative to the frame of reference of every single domain or every country, depending upon how they choose to manage their currency. They could, in theory, right, I can peg to the dollar. Like in Singapore I, or, or UAE, I peg to the dollar. I could peg to gold. I, you know, if I peg to gold, it'll be a 3 4% differential. If I peg to, to the dollar, it could be a 10 15% differential. If I peg to the peso, it could be a 32% differential. Right. So all of the value of Bitcoin relative to the people in the ecosystem, in the domain will vary. Right. And of course, that's why if I'm in Lebanon or Argentina, this is even more insanely valuable to me than if I'm in Switzerland. Absolutely. I would just maybe add that 2% inflation would increase adoption, say, by 2%. But as you increase the inflation rate, I think it would actually be nonlinear because if you take the extreme example of hyperinflation, like everyone would pile out of their currency into the dollar or to Bitcoin, something that was more reliable, such that as you increase from say 2% to 10%, people's inflation expectations actually increase. 
which it gives them further incentive to move into Bitcoin or something alternative. It's, it's multivariant, nonlinear. Yeah. It's one dynamic is hyperinflation panics people into it. High inflation pushes them into it. Low inflation encourages them into it. But we're marking the value of the Bitcoin to all the assets, the tangible assets, all the products and services and assets in the domain, which is being inflated. And that's also having an impact, a frame of reference impact. So, right. so, so the frame of reference changes literally when it's a million dollars for a cup of coffee. Right. Bitcoin's going to be worth a billion dollars, right? Right. Right. That's, yeah, that is the number go up technology, right? <laughs> so, so it becomes, it becomes powerful in that regard. So each of these four effects, I, I haven't written them out as a, a formula equation. If I was writing, I'd be writing F of adoption, F function of utility, function mm -hmm. of productivity. Because in fact, they're all vectors that are all time di dynamically varying across many dimensions. Each of these is a general idea and they all, they all convolve with one another in order to drive network power. But mm -hmm. when you take them all into, uh, all into effect, then, uh, then you just realize Bitcoin is this energy network. It's going to gather energy. And as, as people perceive it, they will adopt it. The utility is, as people adopt it, they'll want to integrate it with more utility. It's, as as they do that, it's it's natural. We can expect human productivity will increase. We can expect technology to advance. If we only have 0.1% adoption, it's like having all of the gas in 1% of the chamber and I take away the barrier. You can expect it will. It's not getting less. The genie is out of the bottle. The genie is going to expand. And then, you know, betting on some government's to inflate is is not a highly risky bet. You can yeah, yeah, that's a good bet. Probably you'll get that, and yeah. that is that is uh, you know Bitcoin network power dynamic, right? That is the dynamic there, and and everybody everybody that's marketing Bitcoin, they're contributing to it. Everyone working on Bitcoin technologies is contributing to it. Everyone simply holding Bitcoin is contributing to it. Everybody that hates it. Or everybody, everybody attacking every other asset, or every time another asset fails or another currency weakens, it contributes to it, and then just the relentless passage of time contributes to it. I think this is a brilliant way and unique way to look at the network effects of Bitcoin, um, and I also find it interesting that at the center of this vortex is the highest expression of truth we've ever had. Right? It Bitcoin is literally this system of converting energy into indisputable truth about who owns what UTXOs and the 21 million, again, is kind of like the third certainty in life. We've had historically had death and taxes. And now in the socioeconomic sphere, at least we have this number 21 million. We know that can't be violated. And that's what's spurring all these effects. Bitcoin is a cyber economy based upon the principles of truth, respecting the laws of thermodynamics, respecting Newton's laws. You know, if, 
if you're going to worship the goddess of energy, you better respect the laws of conservation of energy. And, and it is that conservative monetary energy system. The first conservative monetary energy system that we've ever invented, anybody can choose to be a member. Any individual, any family, any company, any government can choose to be a member of this closed energy system. And conservative energy is truth. It starts with this simple principle. Energy can be neither created nor destroyed. So it might, by the way, you can lose control of it, right? right. You have it, you can lose control of it and it can dissipate and, and you, can, you can lose it. And so that doesn't mean you can be lazy or sloppy. You have to channel the energy. Right. But Bitcoin is the best system in the history of the world for controlling, storing, and channeling energy. And that's why it's destined to be successful. I, I love I I've never heard it put like that. That conservative energy is truth. That ties it back to how we started this conversation of the eagle dragging the goat off the cliffside, right? It's employing the least energy necessary to accomplish the greatest result. And that's what you want to bet on. That is the winning strategy on what you want to bet. And it points towards the kernel of all economics, which is scarcity gives things market value. Scarcity is the driver of market value. Things that are hard to obtain and have utility are what give them value in the marketplace. The ultimate scarce asset in the universe is energy. Yes. You can't create more of it. Right. If I give this much to you, you can't wiggle your fingers and make it twice as much. Right. If you lose it, it's gone. Yeah. <laughs> and and you can play all these games in thermodynamics. It's a great it's a great field because everybody think they're all looking for that perpetual motion machine, you know, and and yeah. they can go you know, the laws of thermodynamics, you know, we, we used to paraphrase them, you know, at MIT in a snarky way, we'd say. You can't win, you can't break even, and you can't get out of the game. <laughs> the laws of thermodynamics, it's like, from a layman's point of view, you can't cheat. Right. There is no cheating in thermodynamics. It might look like you got something for nothing. Even Maxwell's demon, you know, he, he posed, well, maybe, maybe I could actually fight or reverse entropy and get order from disorder by dividing a chamber and I have a demon and there's a little door and molecules are bouncing around. And what if my demon opened the door when the molecule bounced from the right to the left and closed it before the door bounced from the left to the right? I could over time with randomness get all of the bouncy molecules on one side of the chamber and I could uh, reduce entropy. Mm -hmm. you know? And they're like, it couldn't figure out that they called it Maxwell's demon. Well, you know, what's wrong with that argument? Like, doesn't that break the law of thermodynamics? And the answer came along 100 years later when some IBM computer scientists pointed out that information is building up in the head of the demon. And, mm -hmm. and the information, you know, it, is in of itself creating entropy. And so, right. no, you're not cheating. Once you actually account for all the information in the system and all the disorder in the system and all yeah. the energy in the system, it did, it did respect the laws of thermodynamics. And you, you can't cheat 
time, you can't cheat space. I mean, there is ultimately conservation. And Isaac Newton, right, all of Newton's laws, conservation of mass, conservation of energy, F equals MA. It's, it's the right. basics of physics, the basis of mechanics. It's the basis of every machine we built that works. Right, right, right. It's the basis of, of all of our heat exchange. And, and um, it, it hasn't been, I mean, scientists and engineers don't have a high opinion of economists. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and one of the reasons why is that it hasn't been important for economists to understand closed systems, isolated systems, you know, servo mechanisms, you know, conservation of mass and energy, E equals MC. E equals MC matters. What it means is if there's mass, it becomes exponentially expensive to move it around. E is the energy. You want to move stuff fast, you need to take the mass to zero. And that's right. how you move stuff fast. So, you know, economists, maybe, maybe what they were doing didn't matter before Bitcoin. Like, right. like you could just say maybe Bitcoin is the first time that technology crashed into eco economics. You have you have energy, you have technology, you have math crashing into economics. And now you couldn't really be a competent economist without appreciating closed systems, energy efficiency, right. math, conservation of you know yeah. everything. Right. Another thing this calls to mind, and maybe a unique way to look at Bitcoin, we can't break the laws of thermodynamics. Those are the rules of the game within which we are operating in physical reality. And Bitcoin, in a way, maps onto that system very nicely because it gives us an economic system in which we cannot break the laws. Right? It, it perfectly <clears throat> respects and aligns itself with the laws of thermodynamics in the economic sphere. And another thing this made me think of was, this is a framework I got from you on inflation, was that you know CPI is low, but everything you want is inflating rapidly. And it's almost as the, I guess you could probably plot that on a spectrum as the things that are more energy intensive to create are inflating more rapidly, right? And the things that are created easily are tweaked and controlled and dumped into that CPI bucket. Because the laws of thermodynamics apply, even if you don't wish they did. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you can't get out of the game. No, no free lunch in the universe, right? <laughs>
gold-backed paper currencies are good at moving value across space, right? That was their purpose of introduction. But they actually suffer because they, they have all of these frictions between different regulatory and intermediary environments, such that when you try and move cash, say, from China to the U.S., uh, you hit different types of capital controls and, and whatnot. So it can be very expensive and cumbersome to actually move fiat currency across uh, different jurisdictional domains, which, which actually inhibits its original purpose, which was to increase the portability of money. And I like the analogy he drew with uh, a boat, right? Actually, if you consider that the moving value across space function of money uh, is something like uh, putting goods on a boat, putting, uh, selling it across the sea, he's saying that effectively, uh, that, you know, gold was a dinghy, very uh, unlikely to move value across space well, whereas fiat currency might be something more like a wooden ship, uh, a little bit better at doing that, but still uh, not ideal. Whereas Bitcoin is actually like a steel ship. Uh, you know, it's, it's an extremely strong protocol uh, and as long as you, you know, you maintain steel by painting it, it's basically indestructible. So and the analogy there being, so long as Bitcoin is maintained by the mining network, right, which is, um, which generates its revenues through the block subsidy and transaction fees that it essentially makes the, the monetary network itself, uh, you know, self-reinforcing and, and indestructible in a lot of ways. And then... The last analogy that steel's super repairable, right? If you weld a steel plate onto the hull of the ship, the weld actually has a higher uh, tensile strength than the original steel itself, uh, which I think we can analogize to Bitcoin is that it can absorb superior competitive features from the marketplace. So it can actually uh, repair or improve itself in a way that makes it even stronger than its original form. So that was a great analogy. And the other one I liked that we touched on was the vacuum sealing of food, which if you think about it, is just a way of restricting the stored energy, whether it's food or money, from contact with entropy of the environment, right? So in the case of vacuum sealing, we're removing all of the air, all of the microorganisms that might exist in that air or water or moisture um, from the package itself. Uh, such that none of them can attack the energy content stored therein. And the analogy there being uh, getting the entropy or uncertainty out of the monetary channel, um, we can think of the SHA-256 algorithm as an, an, uh, a, an encrypted, va uh, encrypted vacuum sealing of the monetary energy stored in the Bitcoin network. So it gives it this super high resistance to impurities uh, or uncertainty or um, nefarious actors, right? Or even, even um, they don't, don't have to be nefarious necessarily, uh, depending on your perspective on central banks, but it gets the uncertainty out of your money, right? So it gives it this energetic vacuum seal. So I thought that was a really cool analogy too. And we talked about money being power and that money itself is the superset of all power that humans have been able to create in the world. Um, and again, the physics definition, which I really like for power because it ties back to the importance of proof of work. Power is the capacity to do work over time, right? So to, to be able to apply force over distance over time, that's what um, power actually means. 
And it makes sense that we would generate power or, or be able to um, allocate energy into a power storage network through proof of work, right? That's what gold mining was, and that's what the mining expenditure related to Bitcoin is. And so we think of money as this amalgam of all the powers that human beings have had over time. Uh, and look at Bitcoin through that lens, we see that the power in the network, uh, which was another analogy Sailor used, was kind of like the voltage in a closed source system, right? So the supply of Bitcoin doesn't move, but the amount of energy stored in the network can be, is the only thing that can be increased. So it's a perfectly closed system that uh, mass can neither exit or leave, but only energy can be added to it. And so in that way we could think of uh, the power of the energy of the Bitcoin energy network as its price effectively. And we, we dug in a little bit of that and it's talked about, you know, the stock to flow model and, and Bitcoin supply issuance. It's not actually the supply that's driving the value necessarily. Uh, as we go into later, it's more a function of its utility, but, uh, this, because it's not, as Sailor said, the impossibility to produce something is not what makes it valuable. It's actually the, the impossibility of producing something that already has relevance to someone's goal-directed action, right? That's so, so value is this subjective uh, quality where if an, a particular object or even a service or a piece of knowledge is relevant to you accomplishing the aims of your goal-directed action, if it's an accelerant for you towards achieving your goals, then we could say that thing has value. Um, now the value, even if something has an accelerant towards you achieving your aims, say like oxygen, right? We all have the aim of breathing and surviving. It doesn't actually have a lot of value because it has no scarcity, right? So the scarcity can amplify the value, but the value itself um, is actually a function of its, uh, the, in, the individual good service or knowledge is relevance to your goal-directed action. And uh, so with that, we we actually looked, as Sailor like to put in these buckets of what actually defines the monetary network value of Bitcoin, and he classified it as adoption, inflation, utility. Um, and I love this quote he used, that Bitcoin is, quote, an encrypted energy crucible in which we store the energy of life. So we've, we've touched on it repeatedly in the show that money is life force, right? It's this meta energy that allows us to access essentially any other form of energy that's available in the marketplace. Um, and in that way, it's, we need a system that maps onto the scarcity of the thing that it represents, if that makes sense. So in thermodynamics, energy can neither be created nor destroyed. So it makes sense that the money which best maps onto that uh, would become naturally selected in the marketplace. And then went to, into another definition of money, and this is one I've used several times. I say that money is an insurance policy on the uncertainty of the future, right? The ineradicable uncertainty of the future. No matter how much technology advances, we're never going to get rid of uncertainty. Um, and uncertainty itself, by the way, is another expression of entropy, right? And we live in a universe pervaded by entropy. And in fact, entropy is the only thing that defines the flow of time in the universe. Uh, everything, all physical processes are symmetric, but 
the one thing uh, that imparts a directionality to time is the, this flow of entropy. Things becoming increasingly uh, uncertain or breaking down or more chaotic over time, left un unmaintained. And so money, since it gives us pure optionality in the marketplace, it's like no matter what unforeseen consequence we encounter, money is the best tool for dealing with that uncertainty because it gives us a claim on the collective savings of the world. So we can access whatever it is we may need, assuming it's available in the marketplace, to resolve that uncertainty uh, when we encounter it. And Saylor made a good uh, caveat to this analogy because he said that one thing about an insurance policy is that it carries a lot of counterparty risk. So even today, you know, we're, we're sitting in 2020 with this global pandemic striking. There's many, many insurance policies are not being paid out because they had exclusion exclusions for pandemic or other, um, you know, force majeure, I think as they call a lot of them. And so we could say that Bitcoin is actually even more valuable than just a standard insurance policy and that it's a non-counterparty insurance policy, right? It's a money that does not have any political exposure um, to, to pay out, right? So if, you, if you're holding cash in a form that can't be confiscated, inflated, stopped, then no matter what uh, eventuality you encounter, no matter what circumstances you encounter in dealing with the uncertainties of life, you have a, a pool of pure capital optionality, basically with Bitcoin. And that cannot be said for any other asset. There is no other money that can provide you uh, that degree of assurance. And so when this is, I, I mentioned that quote that this is from Carl Schmidt, that sovereign is he who decides the exception so this is really important because by totally removing the counterparty risk from money, Bitcoin has removed all exceptions from money or the monetary policy, if you will. And by doing that, right, you've taken away the ability to make exceptions in, in the, the game of Bitcoin. So all of a sudden, sovereign is he who makes the exception. If no one can make the exception, then no one's sovereign, right? So there's no sovereign over participants in the network which means you've maximized the individual sovereignty of all network participants. And this is something that's really radical. Like you really have to think about this for a long time. Um, and again, we could define sovereignty somewhat simply as just the authority to act as one sees fit, right? The, the ability to conduct an action consistent with your purpose and aims. And Bitcoin's the only money in history that maximizes our ability to do that. So as I argue, actually one of my latest pieces, Bitcoin and Hope, that Bitcoin is money purpose built for entrepreneurship, right? Uh, it maximizes not only their sovereignty, but also their accountability uh, and their ability to engage in adventure, right? And to engage in, in um, business dealings and uh, taking on risk to try and solve problems for for the market um, and generate value in the process. So I thought that was a really interesting way to look at it. And then we got into debt. And I love this, the way he described debt as almost an anti-energy, where you've actually, instead of having this capital cushion against uncertainty, that debt actually can amplify uh, the, the negative consequences of encountering uncertainty. Now, it can also be used to enhance the positive consequences, right? That's what leverage is. It will amplify your gains or losses. 
Um, but it tends to be a poor strategy over time because the one thing that's unavoidable in an entropic universe is volatility. So uh, it makes volatility, you know, positive volatility more beneficial, but it can make negative volatility, uh, it can cause you total destruction, right? It puts you at risk of ruin, which uh, if you've read any of Taleb's work is just, you know, the number one thing we all must avoid. So we got into some specific examples of how fiat currency, it's actually, because it's depreciating over time and large corporations have access to really cheap loans, that it's actually incentivizing them to take negative treasury positions, right? To borrow money on the market at low rates and buy back their own stock. Because they, because again, you would expect that the scarcity of that stock and the performance of the underlying capital would tend to outperform the borrowing cost in a market where uh, the cost of, of, of borrowing is suppressed by central banks effectively. So this puts corporations in a, a weird position because it's causing, the incentive structure is such that it causes them to fragilize their own business model and to, instead of having a, a positive uh, buffer against uncertainty in their treasury, they actually carry negative uh, treasury balances, which can make them um, subject to their creditors, right? The wishes of their creditors, which again, sovereign is he who makes the exception. So all of a sudden by uh, marginalizing your own capital position and putting yourself in the hands of creditors, you've now, you've now um, given away your sovereignty, if you will, to a creditor and, and um, taken it away from yourself and your shareholders. So I thought that was brilliant as well. Um, and then we went into the politics of currency. And this is, this is another way to look at the importance of Bitcoin is that, you know, people for years have talked about getting the money out of politics, right? If we get the money out of politics, that would make for a more fair and equitable system. But Bitcoin sort of flipped that on its head and said, forget getting money out of politics, right? That, that would require legislating away human nature somehow, which is in a way that's not possible. What we can do instead with Bitcoin is just get politics out of money, right? All of a sudden we have a money that can't be uh, manipulated or confiscated based on political will. And Sailor's analogy here is that politics actually toxify the currency. And we could think of quantitative easing or, or monetary inflation as actually like putting a healthy individual on chemotherapy uh, just to enrich the physician, the physician being the government, right? It's like the, the physician is administering this uh, quote-unquote medicine to the patient, but the patient, you know, being the productive economy, doesn't actually need it, right? Quantitative easing, again, it's not infusing any new value into an economy. It's just reallocating it away from those holding the, the fiat currency as a store of value to those holding assets, that, that inflate, right? Typically real estate, stock, reliably scarce assets. So and the, the other part of that is that over time, you know, this analogy holds because like even sugar or, or drugs, like maybe heroin or chemotherapy, it loses its efficacy over time. So the stimulative effects of, of fiat currency inflation actually diminish over time as well. And that's what we're seeing today in 2020 is that central banks have kind of pushed all the levers uh, to the metal, so to speak, and they're getting very little economic response as a result. And it, through that biological lens, we could consider hyperinflation 
as being a form of like socioeconomic organ failure or, or a toxic shock, or all of a sudden these energy centers, right, in the form of our institutions or, or economic networks, the lifeblood that flows through them and currency has been so diminished in terms of its informational and energetic carrying capacity that the institutions start to come unravel, right? People can no longer uh, interoperate between themselves and between these institutions that maintain, the trust that maintains social cohesion is basically diluted uh, along with the currency. So I thought that was a great, great way to look at it as well. And then this, I think this is just a wonderful argument, this next point, on how to just diffuse anyone's counterpoint to Bitcoin. Once, assuming they have a relatively sophisticated understanding of a store value function, and it's just a very simple thought experiment, how do you store value effectively for 100 years into the future? How can I store value today in a uh, the most lossless way to transmit it 100 years into the future, right? So we could say, all right, what's being used today is store value, FANG stocks, right? Or other high performing equities. They're being used today, why not, why not those? So the problem with those is that clearly by owning an equity, you're taking on industry, regulatory, and counterparty risk. Um, there's not really many equities you could have invested in 100 years ago that would still hold their value today. Uh, maybe none, actually, I'm not, I could be wrong on that, but very, very few. So you'd have to be you know, the stock picker of the century, uh, so to speak, for that to work. So you could say, oh, well, let's look at something like real estate. Real estate also suffers from all of those issues. It does have reliable scarcity, but it's an asset that's out in the open. It can't be hidden. In the event of uh, a war or an, an escalation of property taxes or even just outright confiscation, as in the U.S. we have eminent domain, your property could just be taken away completely. Um, even if it worked perfectly, say you're paying a low property tax rate of 2% a year, you're still getting cut in half every 35 years. So that's not a very effective way. Um, so that would take you kind of to the, the historically the most trust minimized asset or trustless store value, which is gold. Um, but as we covered in the last episode, you know, government, or I'm sorry, gold has 2% inflation per year. If you're trying to circumvent the counterparty risk related to it, you need to move it, right? Every say quarter, every few years, that can be another 25 basis points to 1% per year. So now even looking at gold as the hardest economic store value historically, uh, you're talking about getting cut in half every 35 to 22 years, um, and over a hundred year period, you're approaching a 90% loss of value. You could say fiat currency, right? The U.S. dollar. U.S. dollar is strong today, but uh, I would argue that there's scarcely a worse choice than that. Um, that is the wealth storage medium that least holds its value over time. I think your best case of holding a fiat currency for 100 years, at least the past 100 years, saying the US dollar, you're above 99% total loss of value. And that's if you pick the right currency and yours doesn't hyperinflate or is invaded by another country and, and deauthorized or whatever it may be. So you're somewhere between 99 and 100% loss of total value in fiat currency. So what does that leave you with? It leaves you with Bitcoin, right? There's only one store of value that is totally free of counterparty risk has a com 
fully diluted or totally uh, universally transparent and predictable uh, supply schedule. So we all know the inflation. There's zero unexpected inflation. Um, and it, it can be stored in a way, in any number of ways, um, in these custom high security, ultra high security custody schemas, right? Like multi-sig and, and things of that sort. So I think just zoom out on the store value argument. It's a clear winner, right? There's just not even competition. Uh, I mean, your second best choice is maybe, I guess, gold or possibly real estate. And you're still looking at, you know, say in the case of real estate, if everything went perfectly uh, and you only had your 2% property tax per year, you're, you're looking at like an 87% total loss in 100 years. So, whereas Bitcoin, you have essentially zero, right? Because you, we, it's not that Bitcoin doesn't have inflation in the system, but the inflation is, it's a fully diluted cap table, if you will. Everyone knows what it is. So you're playing off of 21 million, even though say maybe 18 and a half million Bitcoin have only been issued so far to date. So I thought that was brilliant. Great way to look at it. Zoom out in the store value arena. Bitcoin is undisputed the best contender. I mean, the one argument against it would be it's new, right? It's 12 years old. So how could you argue it's going to last for 100 years? Um, and that just comes down to faith in kind of the existing track record of Bitcoin and the protocol and the map underpinning it. So um, it's not a surefire bet, but assuming Bitcoin continues to function in the same flawless way it has to date, then it's not even a contest. Bitcoin's far and away the best store value. And so that got us into a discussion about history. And Sayla made the point that the greatest lesson of history was that the most organized group of people win. Clearly, right? We are more than the sum of our parts when we can coordinate our efforts. And again, by getting the politics out of money, Bitcoiners are essentially perfectly aligned. Um, we can compete and fight amongst ourselves and argue and all of these things, but the one thing that doesn't change, it's not subject to politics, is 21 million, right? 21 million, no confiscating, only private keys can generate and spend transactions. Uh, these, these fundamental rules of money that are not subject to politics enhances the cohesion of Bitcoiners effectively. And so that's another perspective on why Bitcoin wins. It's just gonna have a more organized, more disciplined uh, force basically behind it, human force. And the way I tweeted this the other day, I really liked uh, just putting it this way, and this gets back to the Sun Tzu thing, that territory is the most decisive factor in determining the outcome of any battle. And as Bitcoiners, the moral, intellectual, and philosophical high ground that we occupy is virtually unassailable. So in my mind, that's why we win, right? We, we are operating from a place uh, that is the most protected and gives us the most optionality against all competing systems uh, and therefore causes uh, that causes Bitcoin to outcompete all the other systems over time, right? It's just Darwinian. And then going back into the SOV, which store value versus medium of exchange argument, Sailor had a brilliant way of describing this. It, 
Bitcoin's a high frequency store of value and a low frequency medium of exchange. So that every second you're holding Bitcoin, it's performing its function, right? Anyone that's saying Bitcoin doesn't have utility, they don't understand inflation, they don't understand store value because every second you're holding Bitcoin and it's adhering to that fixed and diminishing supply schedule and you're storing it in a custody model that, that's really difficult to confiscate or, or corrupt, um, it's performing its, its function, right? It's storing your monetary life energy in a encrypted vacuum sealed container. Um, and you know, one of the things he said there was in the sphere of money, Bitcoin is immortal energy. We've never had anything like this. Um, and this too got into, we got into a little bit of the discussion about how preserving this wealth will impact the relationship, Bitcoin's relationship with fiat currency. So if Bitcoin, which is historically yielding about 20% annually, if you can go into the market and borrow at 5%, you have an incentive to never sell. You have an incentive to just keep accumulating Bitcoin and borrowing uh, up to these intelligent thresholds, right? Of ideally never being marked to market uh, and having favorable loan covenants. Your incentive is to borrow and acquire Bitcoin. And um, that again, he, he analogizes this to how generational wealth is handled, where a lot of families just own, say, a block in New York City, and they just borrow against it little by little over time. So, so there's a point in the sphere of money. Bitcoin operates as this immortal energy, if you will. And the incentives related to Bitcoin are interesting because historically it's been yielding, say, 20% annualized return. So if you can go into the marketplace and borrow, let's say 5% or anything below the annualized return, then you actually have an incentive to do so, to actually go out and borrow and acquire more Bitcoin. And more recently, this was recorded before Sailor's latest announcement, but most recently, uh, he actually used MicroStrategy's balance sheet to go out and raise uh, some convertible notes uh, and do this very thing, where he can borrow at a rate below Bitcoin's expected annualized return, and he's using it to acquire additional Bitcoin. And this, this points towards something really interesting. Pierre Rochard wrote a great piece about this years ago. Um, I think it's called Speculative Attacks. And so, What's effectively happening is that since Bitcoin tends to outperform broader investment indices, right? And since debt and interest rates, I'm sorry, excuse me, interest rates are being artificially suppressed by interest uh, by central banks, this opens up an attack vector on the fiat currency itself, where market actors can go into the marketplace, borrow fiat, and then actually sell that fiat to acquire Bitcoin. And if you do this at scale, this can actually uh, induce inflationary pressure on the fiat currency undergoing the speculative attack. So we could even say that what the sailor's recent move with the convertible note play is in some ways actually a speculative attack on the US dollar. So again, it just points towards this, how the economic principles underpinning money and the incentive schemes uh, related to both fiat currency and Bitcoin sort of all point towards the ultimate success of Bitcoin in the long term. And then we got into the utility of money. as another one of these 
these factors that drive Bitcoin's success. And the general point here is pretty straightforward. It's Bitcoin is extensible, meaning its protocol is adaptable. You can, you can add other features to it. You can build businesses on top of it. You can connect APIs to it. There's a great degree of program programmability um, that Bitcoin enables is something like gold simply does not, right? Gold is just this dumb rock that essentially sits in a vault um, and provides assurances of supply scarcity, uh, but offers none of this other feature set that Bitcoin enables. And looking at it as technology, we also say that fiat currency, it suffers because it has these technology backdoors in the form of issuers being able to inflate the supply and steal wealth from everyone else, whereas something like gold or Bitcoin does not, right? It, it has these, these back doors closed. And this, this spins up a number of interesting possibilities with Bitcoin, which Sailor went into in a little more detail, but basically by interfacing this base monetary protocol we call Bitcoin with digital technology, we now gain a huge degree of customizability and uh, unique ways to say channel our will or intent across time uh, and fund it in, in many unique ways. Uh, and you can do this, you know, with things like smart contracts even that actually mitigate or minimize counterparty risk. Whereas if, again, you wanted to send flowers to your niece on her birthday every year for a hundred years after your death, do that with something like gold, you'd have to put all your trust in a custodian uh, and some type of payment mechanism to get to the flower delivery guy. And then the flower delivery business itself, you'd have to you know, bet on one that was going to stay in business. Whereas with something like Bitcoin, you can actually write a lot of these things, increasingly write these things into the code or into a smart contract that could go into the marketplace and search, right, for, uh, say, a good payment service to deliver the payment, a good flower delivery service. So it gives you a much higher degree of adaptivity and resiliency and projecting your will and intentions um, beyond the grave even. So super interesting way to look at Bitcoin. And then he touched on another aspect of Bitcoin that really drives its valuation. And he was referring to the productivity of the Bitcoin network participants themselves. So when market actors, whether they're individual corporation government, have decided to go long Bitcoin, they're making a similar decision to what Saylor did, where they're deciding to use Bitcoin as a primary treasure reserve asset, or so differently, just to hold it on their balance sheet as a means of storing wealth. And what this does is, this is a two-phased kind of approach, because the initial phase is just, hey, I'm putting my treasure into Bitcoin, right? I'm selling the cash and buying Bitcoin. But the second order effect of that is, once you've made that decision, you as a productive and effective entrepreneur are going to continue sweeping profits or excess cash flow into your treasury over time. So not only is the, the value accreted to the Bitcoin network, it's not even that initial slug of capital in the form of the treasury transaction, but also the discounted future expected cash flows from future sweeps into that same treasury, right? And, um, and I think this is an incredibly interesting way to look at it because I've never seen anyone in Bitcoin that studies it closely that becomes bullish that ever becomes less bullish. So it's almost like once you're in, you're allocating capital in, you're studying it more closely, you see all of these things we've covered right in depth and more things we will cover. 
on how significant of a monetary innovation this really is. And it just causes you to sort of escalate your allocation percentage, right? Maybe you're 20% of your treasury initially and then creeping up to 30, 40, 50. And this is all this self-reinforcing feedback loop because every decision you make to increase your allocation into Bitcoin is putting game theoretic pressure on all other market participants to do the same, right? It's a game of, of, of front running or taking as much territory on the network as possible. So this has a really interesting effect of intertwining the fate of Bitcoiners together in a way that it's like a compounding incentive structure that it incentivizes us not only to become more productive, right? To generate even more free cash flow to put into savings, right? This into this superior savings technology, but it also incentivizes us as holders to want to educate others. We want to, to describe to the rest of the world for not only financial purposes, but also for moral purposes of how the existing system is rigged and you are being robbed. And that this is not only pragmatically the best system, but also philosophically the best system for savings the world's ever had. And um, even evangelize, right? Once you're a Bitcoin holder and you found this way of, of saving your own wealth, your own life energy in, a, in an uncompromisable medium across time, you, you want the same for others, right? The, the natural human proclivity towards helping one another, um, I think sort of comes to the surface and that you want to see others succeed in the same way because why, why would you want anything else, right? Other, actually other people succeeding in true free market economic competition, it's a positive sum game, right? Every time someone's doing something better, faster, cheaper, that solution they're providing accretes to all of us. So Bitcoin really, not only does it intertwine all of the fates of its, of its network of market participants, but it's also encouraging us to think differently and, and communicate differently um, versus a fiat currency paradigm, which is much more zero sum, right? Much more rent seeking focused. So that, that was really interesting too. So on this topic of Bitcoin as an American in the idea sense technology, see I had this great quote that a crucible of virtuous innovation requires a vacuum insulation layer, right? Again, to preserve the wealth, whether that's the productivity, the energy generated, the profits, the cash flows of any entity requires um, an insulating layer of some kind. Otherwise, the entropy of nature, right? Whether it's the greed of man or the uncertainty of nature um, or the, the transaction uh, or let's say the taxes, right, of, of moving capital from one jurisdiction to another, they just eat up that wealth itself. So again, we're back to that Bitcoin being the ultimate vacuum ceiling of capital we've ever had, which I thought was just a great analogy. We got into inflation a bit. And the one thing I just really wanted to point out here is that contrary to what Bitcoin is, right, this, this virtuous feedback loop of, of incentives and game theory, fiat currency is actually the reverse. So not only is it inflation theft, right? It's eroding real wealth through uh, fiat currency supply inflation, but it's also, there's a psychological element to it as well. So if inflation is growing, market actors are smart. They start to attempt to front run future inflation. So actually inflation expectations 
tend to outpace actual inflation in a non-linear fashion. So inflation is coming in at two, three, four, five percent. If it's growing, people expect it to continue growing. And they'll actually start selling their fiat today in anticipation of fiat, further fiat currency inflation in the future. And when you sell fiat currency, you're inducing uh, further inflationary pressure on it, right? You're actually increasing the velocity of money itself. So it becomes this game of like hot potatoes, like you don't want to hold the dollars. And this can add fuel to that vicious cycle that ultimately culminates in hyperinflation. And again, that's just the precise opposite of Bitcoin's quantitative hardening technology, right? It's disinflating over time, causing it to appreciate. And then finally, we got into, you know, one of the topics I like to talk about a lot, which I think is eternally mystifying, is this concept of truth. Um, and Saylor presented it in a way I'd never heard before, in that he said, quote, conservative, conservative energy is truth, meaning that what whatever strategy or organism or organization best adheres to the first law of thermodynamics, right? And optimizing its, its inflows and outflows, let's say of, of energy or money or anything else, uh, that's how you succeed, right? You want to maximize your cash inflows, minimize your cash outflows, for instance, to be a successful organization. And in that context, Bitcoin is the first conservative monetary network in history. We could say gold was one, it was the most conservative monetary network in history, but Bitcoin's the first one that maps perfectly onto thermodynamics. I thought that's super interesting. And, um, you know, as, as sailors said, sort of, uh, sort of jokingly how they talked about thermodynamics at MIT and that you can't win, you can't break even and you can't escape the game. Bitcoin maps onto that really well. It's like, you can't manipulate 21 million. You must incur transaction fees, right? So you can't really break even. Um, and you can't ignore the game, right? You can't escape the game of Bitcoin. It just imposes its rules on everything. So that was it. I think it was a great episode. You know, he, he concluded with saying that perhaps Bitcoin is actually the first instance of technology crashing in economics. So possibly it'll, it'll cause a rewriting of the history books, which I've... I've intuited it would, um, more so in the sphere of, say, capitalism versus socialism. But we may actually see um, economics become more focused on these uh, physical principles of, say, energy um, and, and um, everything we've discussed today, thermodynamic principles and things like that. And actually, uh, the new book by Safety, you know, he's, he's writing a book called Principles of Economics, and it goes into energy which is not something you typically see in economic textbooks. So he might be at, right at the cutting edge of something really important. So anyways, that was episode five. Uh, I hope you can tell things are heating up at this point. You know, we spent a lot of time building this foundation, and now I think you're starting to see the fruits of that. And uh, things are only going to get more interesting going into future episodes. So thanks again, and we'll see you soon.